Hi, this is Pastor Emily McGinley from Urban Village Church, Hyde Park, Woodlawn. If you've been to UVC, you'll know that we seek to be three things, bold, inclusive, and relevant. We know that there are countless folks across the country and out there in podcast land like yourself, seeking a message that will bring insight, hope, encouragement, and joy as we do this thing called faith. Please consider making a financial gift to help us with this work of inspiring, equipping, and sending out agents of gospel life and inclusive love. Just go to www.urbanvillagechurch.org forward slash give. Thanks for listening and God bless. Our passage for today comes from First uh, Peter chapter 3, verses 11 through 18. Listen for what God is saying to you. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be? You must live holy and godly lives, waiting for and hastening the coming day of God. Because of that day, the heavens will be destroyed by fire and the elements will melt away in the flames. But according to his promise, we are waiting for a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness is at home. Therefore, dear friends, while you are waiting for these things to happen, make every effort to be found by him in peace, pure and faultless. Consider the patience of our Lord to be salvation, just as our dear friend and brother Paul wrote to you according to the wisdom given to him, speaking of these things in all his letters. Some of his remarks are hard to understand, and people who are ignorant and whose faith is weak twist them to their own destruction, just as they do the other scriptures. Therefore, dear friends, since you have been warned in advance, be on guard so that you aren't led off course into the error of sinful people and lose your own safe position. Instead, grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him belongs glory now and forever. Amen. May God add a blessing to the hearing and living out of this scripture. Let's pray. God, we give you thanks for the gift that it is to come together on this uh, overly warm day um, into this cool space to find respite not only for our bodies but also for our spirit. We ask that your spirit would be present within us and through us moving freely throughout this space and that we might hear what it is that you have to say to us in this moment. May we be comforted, challenged, moved, to live more fully into being those people you created and called us to be. Amen. So earlier this week, I learned a phrase, spurious correlations. Does anyone know what that is? Got a few folks, uh, uh, math-minded people maybe. Um, Well, for the rest of us, uh, including myself, a spurious correlation is the comparison of two events that might seem like they're related, but actually have nothing to do with each other. So consider this chart in which the number of people who drowned by falling into a pool between 1999 and 2009 suspiciously follows the number of films that Nicolas Cage appeared in. Is his acting that bad? (laughs) I'll let you guys be the judge. (laughs) There's some opinions in here. Uh, Or there's this one, which shows that the number of people who have died by getting tangled in their bed sheets between 2000 and 2009 is closely related to the per capita consumption of cheese. The divorce rates in Maine fell precipitously with the per capita consumption of margarine those same years. And then there's this one, which actually I feel like somehow uh, does seem correlated. The total revenue generated by arcades follows closely to the number of computer science doctorates awarded in the US. I mean, maybe some of these same kids who were playing in the arcades in 20 years have developed a time machine by which they could travel back to the exact time they were learning how to play video games and also receive computer science doctorates. I don't know, maybe not. (laughs) 
But I think you get what's going on here, right? Two completely unrelated things being set side by side as if they have some kind of effect on one another. Spurious correlations. Why am I talking about this? Well, in many ways, a spurious correlation is what the author of 2 Peter is trying to point out in our passage for today. You see, there were all these people at the time of this message. Uh, people were basically saying, where is your powerful God now? You keep talking about how they'll be returning any moment, but it's been a minute, right? So you still going to make that claim? Roman, please. Well, <laughs> you. in many ways, a spurious correlation is what the author of 2 Peter is trying to point out in our passage for today. You see, there were all these people at the time of this message, people who were basically saying, where is your powerful God, right? Powerful God. So, but these Christians were totally sold out, totally bought in, fully committed to the message of Jesus, and to be honest, they were kind of shook, right? They did believe that Jesus was coming back, and yeah, they thought it should have happened or was just about to happen. So when they're out there on the street declaring that vengeance is near, people are starting to think like, how near is near, right? Because it doesn't seem to be working out the way that you're telling it. And because of this, these Christians are starting to get some flack, right? So Peter is trying to make something clear. Just because Jesus hasn't returned, that doesn't mean God has no power. I'll say it again in a different way. God's power is not defined, summed up, held captive, or bound by when Jesus will return. Spurious correlations. And anyway, when did the haters get to decide what's worth measuring? It's easy to get wrapped up in someone else's doubt their cynicism or their fatalistic outlook, and I'm just as guilty of it as the next person, right? Just this past week, I saw elders, clergy colleagues who have lived out their ministries into retirement saying things like they were losing hope and feeling despair about all the ways that racism, xenophobia, and misogyny seem to be winning the day. And at first, I was kind of starting to feel it too. Any of you kind of sometimes feeling like that? Right? And and this dread, right, about where things were going with our country. And, and then I was like, whoever told us to trust that governments would guarantee our safety anyway, right? What did government ever do for Jesus and his refugee family, right? No, my hope doesn't rest in the courtroom or in the cross. Um, my hope is rooted in the power of resurrection, which doesn't get us off the hook from engaging our governments, right? We don't get to retreat. It just kind of keeps our perspective in check. My hope and my motivation doesn't come from presidents or empires. My hope comes from Jesus Christ, who showed me what it looked like to live with dignity and work toward the dignity of others in the midst of unjust, oppressive, brutality-minded systems and governments. It comes from Jesus, who showed me what it looks like to stand, work, and speak in solidarity with those who need it the most. And so... I marched alongside many of you here and thousands of others throughout this city and, in fact, this country to declare that families belong together. Not just because I believe our country is made better by diverse voices, experiences, and backgrounds. I do believe this. But even more, I marched because I believe that every man, woman, gender non-binary person, and child of God deserves the opportunity to pursue a flourishing life in the tradition of Jesus. This is God's vision for all of God's people. Things are not looking good. This may be true. But just because things are not looking good, it doesn't mean that's the end of it. This is what Peter is basically saying, right? Pay no mind to the haters and the naysayers. While their observations might seem true for the moment, their conclusions are most certainly not. Do not believe 
the spurious correlations. The culmination of God's work in the world, the end of times. This will come when God is good and ready for it to come, he's saying. If you think your only job as a Christian is to hang tight until the second coming, you have missed the point entirely. How many of us come from traditions where you just would retreat into your little Christian bubble until Jesus comes back, right? So our job in the meantime and in between time actually is to fix our eyes and our imagination on what it means to carry on the tradition of Jesus regardless of our circumstances, to live out God's grace within you and through you. And it's this grace, vast and powerful, transgressive and transformational It's this grace that we are talking about today and over the next few weeks. The active work of God in the world. This is how John Wesley, the founder of what later became the Methodist movement, this is how he talked about grace. Now, if you've been part of the starting point class at UBC, you'll remember that Wesley used the metaphor of a house to describe three primary forms that grace takes. First, there's the porch wide and welcoming, ready to receive every person who walks by. This is the grace that exists whether you're aware of it or not. John Wesley called this, that's right, you see these starting point graduates here, prevenient grace. But there's a moment when you might awaken to that grace, right, and walk onto the porch. And that's when the prevenient grace becomes a kind of invitation, right? An invitation into a deeper relationship with that grace and the God who gifts it to us. So once you're on the porch, you have a choice, right? You could either get back off the porch and be on your way, or you could walk through the front door. And for Wesley, this act of walking through the front door is what he called, there we go, justifying grace, I heard it. This is the acceptance of God's invitation, the choice to enter into a deeper engagement with grace and with God. And when you walk through the door, when you, when you receive that justifying grace, when you enter the house, that's when the real adventure begins. This is when you actually begin to live a life of faith. This is where you learn what pursuing and participating in God's vision of wholeness of life for all in the world really demands of us. It's in the house where you begin to experience what Wesley called sanctifying grace. That's right, sanctifying grace. It's the grace to live the fullness of life for which God created us. Now that grace travels with you through all the different seasons of yourself and your life. Sometimes it goes before you to make a way where there seems to be no way. Sometimes it comes up behind you to encourage you in times of despair. And other times, always, always, it journeys alongside you to keep you protected, strengthened, and on course. Sanctifying grace takes shape in all the different ways we experience the various rooms of God's house. The front room, where you're you're, you're your most welcoming, hospitable self. The bathroom, where you are cleansing, relieving, or caring for yourself. The dining room, where you feast on many flavors. Or the kitchen, where you prepare a feast to nourish others. The grace to experience and explore these rooms, to live in these rooms, to grow in these rooms, this is sanctifying grace. Where are you in the house? Which room? Or maybe you're in the doorway or on the porch. Or maybe you were like down the street, right? (laughs) Avoiding the house. For Wesley, I don't think he imagined folks would spend too much time actually in the prevenient grace or the justifying grace. That you'd spend most of your time in the sanctifying grace, ideally, living out your faith. And this sanctifying grace, it isn't just about our individual experience. 
It's not just about our personal faith. It's also about our public faith. How are the ways that our growing faith is empowering us to act with faith? How is the, this grace, which is making a difference in our spiritual lives, how is it shaping our physical lives? And how is it impacting the world that we live in? For John Wesley, sanctifying grace wasn't just for our own benefit. It's for the benefit of the world around us. Now, last Sunday, I had a chance to share dinner, actually, with Cardinal Supich, the, the cardinal of the Chicago Archdiocese, with a handful of other clergy in the area. And, um, and then yesterday, actually, I think it was yesterday, uh, yeah, yesterday, I uh, was sitting at a, on a panel with Father Flager, and so I kind of asked, I was like, hey, I met your cardinal. He's like, he's a good guy. So, you know, he's got some, you know, stamp of approval from, from uh, Flager. Uh, he's, his heart's in the right place, but, you know, kind of wish he was a little more courageous, you know, but that's politics, right? Anyway, so during the dinner, Cardinal Supich said something so good, I had to tweet it. Uh, he said, what keeps Pope Francis going in the face of all the kind of pain and brokenness of the world is this. He asks himself, where is Christ leading me now? Where is Jesus active in the world, and how can I join him? Now, if you are living in sanctifying grace, if you are looking for how to more deeply and fully experience God's sanctifying grace in your life, look around and ask yourself, where is Christ leading me now? Where is Jesus active, and how can I join? Where is one way that you have seen Jesus uh, present and active in the world this past week? There are lots of examples you could probably say of the ways and places that Jesus was not active, right? So think about it. Where might, might Jesus have been active? We've all seen the headlines, right? We know that life is not good for the most vulnerable among us. And yet, we also know that even as those things might be real and true, they don't tell the full story of how God is at work in the world. So think for a moment. Where is one way you see Christ active in the world? How, how is Jesus leading you to join in that activity? Now, a few days ago, Representative John Lewis, a veteran, as many of you know, of the civil rights movement, he also posted a tweet. And he said, don't get lost in a sea of despair. Be hopeful, be optimistic. Our struggle is not the struggle of a day, a week, a month, or a year. It is the struggle of a lifetime. Never, ever be afraid to make some good noise and get in good trouble, necessary trouble. Good trouble is what results when you ask yourself, where is Christ leading me today? Good trouble is what happens when you look for where Jesus is active in the world and decide to join. Good trouble is what Peter is telling his people to get into. Forget the haters, forget the doubters, forget the naysayers. Good trouble is what sanctifying grace made public looks like. Good trouble is what the world needs more of. Get on the porch, get through the door, and let's get into some good trouble. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you invite us into good trouble. We thank you that you invite us onto the porch again and again, ready, patient, willing to wait as long as it takes for us to see that you are there. We thank you for the justifying grace that gives us the courage to step through that door. We know that there are some folks here who have maybe stood at that doorway for a long time or who've stood on the sidewalk outside of that street surveying that porch, wondering whether or not it's going to be a trap. We thank you, God, that you meet us wherever we are 
whether we are on the street, on the porch, in the doorway, or joyfully or, or passionately or, or obligatorily exploring all of the, house, the rooms in the house, but that throughout all of that, your grace abounds around us and within us. And so help us to be people who live into that grace, sometimes with fear and trepidation, other times with courage and with joy, but always with a deep commitment and abiding trust that you are with us and that you seek to do good things with us and through us in this world. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.